Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Centerpoint and to our midweek refresh, our Bible study, uh, which will be on the book of Nehemiah um, that we had an overview of last week. We'll dive into Nehemiah 1 tonight, and then we will have a time of prayer at 6.30 till 7 uh, for the needs of our church. So over here on this table, if you haven't gotten one yet, we'd like to get one. Uh, there's a study guide for chapter 1 of Nehemiah, and there's also a timeline uh, for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that may be helpful to you as we talk about some of these uh, events that have occurred and occurred back in, Nehemiah, in Ezra. Uh, so that might be helpful to you. The timeline is actually courtesy of uh, Emily Woodard, who led a study of Ezra and Nehemiah a few years ago and developed this very helpful uh, timeline of events uh, that's, that's good to have as you read through Scripture. Uh, and also over there, you'll find a... Uh, prayer guide to help us through our time of prayer tonight. But why don't we look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. I believe the the big idea here is that times of crisis, uh, when when unexpected catastrophes happen, uh, they provoke among God's people patient and persistent prayer that prepares us for decisive and strategic action. And sometimes we have to wait for that action. Sometimes it, it only comes later on. We have to wait on God's timing for it to unfold. And we'll see that happening in Nehemiah's life and in his work for the Lord. So, begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, and read through verse 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But... If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name 
and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. If you're old enough, uh, you will remember the response of our nation and the response of the church in our nation specifically uh, to the events of 9-11-2001. You'll remember a great influx of people coming into churches to pray, uh, which is the right response, which is the correct impulse to have when unexpected catastrophe comes. Where do you turn when you feel uh, attacked or brutalized or insecure or in danger where you turn to the God of heaven. That is the the instinct of the Christian heart, at least, or it should be. But you'll also remember, again, if you're old enough, um, that that renewed spiritual fervor, that that prayerful instinct didn't last all that long, did it? Within a few months, uh, that influx of people into churches to, to pray and to seek God's face had dwindled quite a bit. Well, Nehemiah shows us that same impulse to turn to the Lord in heartfelt prayer during times of catastrophe, during times of uncertainty, during times of insecurity. But Nehemiah shows us a sustained focus on God over time. Nehemiah uh, doesn't just start to pray and seek God's face fervently. He continues it over a period of what we'll see is four months until God moves him and shows him specifically, not just how to pray, but actually what to do about this situation. So we see a great response of Nehemiah in prayer to the God of heaven when he realizes what he needs and what his people need. So we see here uh, two main headings. One is a troubling report that comes from Jerusalem. We see this in the first three verses here. And then we see Nehemiah's great response to that, turning to the Lord in prayer. And that prayer is uh, dictated to us in verses four through 11. So let's see, first of all, troubling report coming from Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah is a good storyteller, waits until verse 11, you'll notice, to tell us a key piece of information, and that is that he was cupbearer to the king of Persia, uh, which was a, a quite an important, significant position to have. Uh, not only was the cupbearer the one who protected the king from assassination in that he would actually taste the cup that was handed to the king to make sure it wasn't poison, and he would take the brunt of it, of course, if it was poison. But this position, this position of cupbearer, was also somewhat of an administrative assistant and somewhat of a gatekeeper to the king, so that no one really got access to the king of Persia without going through the cupbearer. So he functioned in many capacities. You might say he was an administrative official, uh, an executive, a bureaucrat even, and he was one who helped protect the king of Persia. So think about the providence of God there. How significant that this Jewish man who was in uh, exile in this foreign land would be appointed to such a significant uh, task and job for such a time as this. So you see that Nehemiah is strategically placed by the hand of God, by the providence of God for this moment in time to have this access to the king, and we see what he does about it. So I hated to jump ahead to verse 11, but that is important as we consider his response here and how it gave him this uh, insider track, if you will, with the king of Persia. 
We're told this happened in the month of Chislev, which is around uh, November, December in our calendar. We're also told it was in the 20th year. What does that mean? Uh, well, it turns out it's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, who has been in power for 20 years. And so it comes about 13 years after the end of Ezra. You'll remember that um, the exiles go back from Babylon to the promised land again in waves. And there's an initial group that goes back. And then years later, uh, Ezra leads a group back and he leads them in spiritual renewal, in revival, in restoration of the kingdom. And uh, this is happening about 13 years after Ezra does that. So if you're looking on your timeline, um, that might help you to pinpoint exactly where we are in this story and in the sequence of events. So the 20th year of King Artaxerxes was around 445 BC, 445 years before Christ uh, to locate us on the timeline. And Nehemiah says that he was in Susa, the citadel, uh, which is uh, near the Persian Gulf in present day Iran, Iraq. And it was the uh, summer residence of the king. It's where he would go Um, I'm sorry, the winter residence, where he would go during the winter uh, to enjoy temperate climate. So he was there in Susa, the citadel, with the king. And Hanani, whom he identifies as one of his brothers, comes with certain men from Judah. Now, we don't know if this was a a brother uh, in in the plainest sense of that term or whether it was just a relative, but this was someone who was in Nehemiah's family, one of his brothers could be just a cousin or something, but someone whom he was very close to. And he inquires of them how the returned exiles, how the returned people of God are doing. Uh, He perhaps has heard troubling news or maybe rumors through the grapevine, and he wants to know from the horse's mouth, how are things going in Jerusalem? And so Hanani and his brothers give him the very bad news concerning the Jews who escaped Uh, Those who survived the exile, the remnant, as it were, returned exiles. And you'll remember on your timeline, if you're looking at it, this happened, the initial return from Babylon happened almost 100 years ago. So I'll give you an idea of the sequence here. And what they're referring to here is recorded for us back in Ezra chapter 4, verses 7 through 23. So it's helpful to go back and read that. We won't take the time to do it tonight. But what Ezra records for us in chapter 4 of his book is a list of trouble that the returned exiles encountered when they went back to Jerusalem. And it's out of sequence, but it's under the heading of difficulty and trouble that they encountered over the years. So it's what we would call anachronistic, but uh, where it fits into the puzzle is right here in Nehemiah chapter 1. These same events are recorded for us in Ezra 4. So you see how those line up together. So what Hanani and these other key individuals, these other key men say uh, to Nehemiah is uh, very troubling to him. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now you'll remember uh, 
hundred years ago, um, prior to that actually, King Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem and took the exiles into captivity. And then some 70 years after that, the exiles came back and made several attempts to rebuild not only their way of life, but also the temple and the community. And they ran into all sorts of opposition when they did that. And this is one of those incidents where the uh, Persian officials who were living there in what they called trans-Euphrates in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas uh, opposed vehemently any attempt for Jerusalem to rebuild itself and for the Jews to establish their way of life again. And it seems when we read Ezra chapter 4 that what is most motivating them is not their great love for the king of Persia, but rather their great love for the green stuff in their pocketbooks because they were pocketing a lot of the tax revenue that was coming in, uh, which they would lose if Judah came under its own leadership. So they seem to be highly motivated uh, by money, and it's a great political opposition that they mount against the people. So that is what is being reported to Nehemiah here in verse 3. So it's a, a troubling report. Gates are being broken down, the walls are destroyed by fire, all their attempts to rebuild have been thwarted, uh, they're encountering terrible, terrible opposition, and things are not going well. Now this is happening, you'll remember, some thousand miles away from where Nehemiah currently is in Susa, so a long ways away, but you'll see that Nehemiah's heart is definitely there with his people in Judah. His heart absolutely breaks for them as he hears this report from his brother about the trouble and distress they're having. And we see what he does with that sorrow. He doesn't just lament, he doesn't just pout or sulk about it. He doesn't bury his head in the sand and pretend it's not happening. He doesn't go into a period of self-pity or discouragement. He turns to the God of heaven, turns to God in prayer. So in verses 4 through 11, we see that prayer detailed. He has a, a, quite an emotional response here as he pours out his sorrow. As soon as I heard these words, so it's an immediate response, almost an impulse, an instinctive response. When he heard these words, he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. And not only started that, but he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It reminds me of Ezekiel's response when he sees the people weeping by the rivers in Babylon. Do you remember what he does? He doesn't go and preach fire and brimstone to them. He just goes and he sits with them for seven days and he doesn't say a word. He just weeps with them silently. And so it's a great reminder. Uh, often what we can do for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are mourning is just to go weep with them. Uh, sometimes the best thing we can do is, is be quiet and be compassionate and weep with people. I'm also reminded of what uh, Jesus tells us uh, in that regard. So his emotional response shows us that his heart is really with his people in Jerusalem. His heart breaks for them. He pours out his heart in this sorrow and, and weeping and prayer. And his instinctive response is to pray and to pray without ceasing, to pray in a sustained, patient way, waiting upon the Lord uh, to renew his strength and to mount up with wings 
as eagles. So there's both an immediate response. He jumps straight to prayer as his first instinct. And then there is a sustained response where he carries that prayer out uh, diligently, day after day, week after week. And we'll notice by the end of this, as we go from chapter one to chapter two, for a period of four months, he is diligently fasting, weeping, praying, seeking the God of heaven, and making himself available to the Lord, uh, much like Isaiah did when he says, here I am, Lord, send me. We'll see that uh, Nehemiah does much the same thing there. Uh, The other biblical passage this reminds me of is when Job loses his family, loses his house, loses his possessions uh, as Satan uh, pulls out all the stops and tries to destroy him. And uh, Job's wife even says, "Uh, why are you still alive? Why don't you just curse God and die? And then Job's friends come to comfort him and uh, their first instinct is not to say anything, is it? It's just to sit and to mourn with Job and to be sympathetic with him and to commiserate with him. And they should have kept with that instinct, shouldn't they? Because what they say later is not all that helpful. Uh, They should have just uh, been quiet and sympathetic. So we see that um, Nehemiah has this same heart as Ezekiel and as Job's friends initially did to weep with those who weep, to sympathize with those in the family of God who are hurting. Uh, to, to be with them, and when you can't be with them, uh, to pray diligently for them, sometimes with tears. Notice where Nehemiah's prayer begins, and for that matter, where it ends. I have a tendency to begin my prayers with myself, because I'm sadly, first and foremost, usually in my own thinking. But uh, Nehemiah's response is to focus where? focus heavenward first, to focus on the God of heaven. And that is a a great way to begin our prayers. It's the same reason that uh, John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion begins not with his doctrine of man, but with his doctrine of God, because we can only understand ourselves rightly in relation to the God of heaven who made us and redeemed us. And Nehemiah's response is quite the same. He focuses his prayer, first of all, not on his own problems, not on the problems of his people even, but on the greatness and the goodness of Almighty God. And it's not just an uh, 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 anonymous deity or even uh, one of the local deities, little g gods that uh, people believed uh, were uh, sovereign over the various kingdoms of the world. Look to whom uh, I, uh, Nehemiah prays. It is the God of heaven. Lord God of heaven, Yahweh Elohim of heaven. So he's praying specifically to this covenant God of Israel, who is not just a regional deity over Israel, but is sovereign over the entire world, the universe, the creative world. So he is the God of heaven. Nehemiah continues to describe him as great and awesome. Um, How casually and flippantly we throw that word awesome around, don't we? I'm guilty of doing this, uh, describing the taste of um, ice cream sometimes, things as silly as that, when really that word ought to be reserved for God. Um, He is so great and so sovereign and so absolutely holy and, and resplendent and without stain or wrinkle and blemish 
uh, that we should tremble in his presence. C.S. Lewis intimates if we can't tremble in his presence, there's something wrong with us or, or we're just being silly. And so he calls him the great and awesome God, the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. There's that wonderful biblical word, hesed, there, steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So notice that Nehemiah's prayer both begins and ends with God's majesty, not his own problems, but God's majesty, God's transcendence. There's those wonderful two attributes of God that he is both imminent, he is with us, he's everywhere all the time, he is in this room, he is always as close as a prayer, he knows our deepest thoughts, he is imminent, he's knowable, he's, he's with us. But at the same time, he's also transcendent. He is over all of us in every way so that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways and his ways are far above ours in every conceivable way so that when we enter into his presence with a sense of love for our heavenly father, we should also enter with with fear and trembling and a great and awesome respect for the God of the universe. So there's uh, wonderful transcendence and eminence reflected in this prayer. Stan Evers says it well. He says, the greater God becomes to Nehemiah, the smaller his problems shrink in comparison. That's a great reminder as we pray. And it's a great reminder to start our prayers, not with our own problems, which at times seem enormous to us, but to start with the God of heaven who is sovereign over every conceivable circumstance and is always working everything out in conformity to his perfect will and is working all things out for our good and for his own glory. If we start with him and how great and awesome he is, um, our problems tend to shrink uh, in light of who he is. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, says the wonderful song. Look full in his wonderful face and watch the things of this earth become strangely dim uh, in the light of his glory and grace. Great wisdom in that. So he identifies himself, you'll see in verse six, as God's servant. So he, uh, he recognizes in his prayer that God is not his servant. It's a silly thing to even conceive of, but oftentimes we treat God as if he's a genie in a bottle and he's here to serve us and our needs when the reverse of that is quite uh, the truth that we are here to serve him. And so Nehemiah humbles himself, um, taking the position of the uh, uh, tax collector in the temple rather than the proud Pharisee in the temple, humbling himself, identifying himself as a lowly servant uh, that is here to do God's bidding, uh, not treating God as if he's a servant uh, that wants to do our bidding. Uh, So very key way to present himself before God. You'll notice that his his prayer is humble. uh, It's contrite. We'll see in verses six and seven that he humbles himself. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. Uh, Those two words, day and night, you combine those two things together and that equals the whole schmear. That's the, the whole ball of wax. If he's praying day and night, that is another way of what Paul says, praying without ceasing. 
His heart is continually in a spirit of prayer, not that he is bowing his head and closing his eyes 24 hours a day, but that his heart is never uh, not in a prayerful mood, not, not in a prayerful frame of mind. So he's praying all the time for the people of Israel. Anytime the Lord brings them to his mind, he's uttering prayers on their behalf. Uh, he calls them your servants. Notice that his prayer is absolutely saturated with Scripture. Um, there are many reasons to diligently use the means of grace and to read Scripture every day and to work through a systematic Bible reading plan. And one of the best reasons is so that we will pray well. We will know the one to whom we pray and we will know what kinds of things we ought to be asking of the one to whom we pray. And, and so Nehemiah has this heart and mind that is absolutely filled and saturated with the Old Testament. And that comes out as he quotes extensively from the book of Deuteronomy here. His, uh, his, his knowledge of scripture comes through in his praying. You can often hear the prayers of those who know God best as they are praying God's words back to him in a sense, uh, making some, something of a patchwork of prayers that are hidden in our hearts that come out when we seek him in prayer. You'll notice that uh, Nehemiah strongly identifies with his people here. He doesn't say uh, to God, I can't do anything with these sinful people of yours, but maybe you can. He doesn't put himself in any different category from them at all. He identifies himself as a fellow sinner along with them. He says, I have sinned just like they have. Have mercy on them and Lord have mercy on me too. I am one of them and I identify with them. And it reminds us of the the heart of Jesus, doesn't it? Um, When he prays for us, when he comes among us to do his saving work, uh, he doesn't just set an example for us. He actually, on the cross of Calvary, becomes sin for us, even though he had no sin of his own, um, so that we might be made in him the righteousness of God. He identifies with us, even in our sin, so that Paul can actually say he became sin for us. Nehemiah says this, something of this heart of, of, of Christ in Nehemiah as he identifies with his people as he counts himself as one of them, as he prays on their behalf and makes himself one of them. He goes on in verse 8 to remind God of his covenant promises. Now, it's not that God, of course, needs to be reminded as if God uh, were prone to forget where he put his keys or something like that. Um, My family is accustomed to me leaving the house in the morning and then 10 or 15 seconds later coming back in for my keys or my wallet or my phone or whatever it is I, uh, I neglected to walk out the door with. Uh, and so I, I tend to be forgetful at times. Uh, God has no such problem with his recollection. Uh, God cannot ever forget anything. God knows all things. He is omniscient and If he ever forgot anything, he would not be omniscient anymore. So he doesn't need to be reminded of promises that he made. What Nehemiah is doing when he prays for God to remember his covenant is he's praying for God to intervene on behalf of those to whom he's made those promises. And if you want a fail-safe 
prayer requests to make. Take one of the wonderful promises of God and pray it back to God. Ask God to be true to his covenant because that is a promise uh, that will always be fulfilled. That is a prayer that will always be answered in the affirmative. Now that right answer may outlive us. It may come in someone else's lifetime, but God will always be true to his covenant. And if he makes a promise to us in scripture, he will be true to it. And so we can have extremely uh, confident uh, assurance when we pray to God and ask him to remember his covenant and to fulfill the promises that he has made to us because he'll never fail to do that. So that his prayer is saturated with scripture and he reminds God of his covenant promises. And if you're like me, you, you need to be reminded of the promises that God has made. God is in no need to be reminded of what he has said to his people, but Nehemiah in this moment when his heart is getting the better of him and he is uh, fearful and he is mournful and he is sad and he's despondent, he desperately needs to be reminded of what God has promised his people. And so when he uh, prays scripture and prays God's promises back to him, his heart, uh, I'm sure, was emboldened and strengthened and encouraged as he did that, as he recalls what God has promised to do. Nehemiah, uh, we'll see in this prayer, does not just have his own well-being at heart, though he does have that. He does not just have his own people's well-being at heart, though that is important too. But he also has God's reputation at heart. He wants the Lord to be known as the great and awesome God that he is by the nations. And so he wants him to fulfill his promises to his people so that he might get the praise and the glory and his honor and so that his name might be praised from one end of the earth to the other. Nehemiah's prayer, just a couple of other aspects of it, uses the concept of redemption. Verse 10, Nehemiah says, he is referring to his people in Judah, they are your servants. Notice that concept of ownership. He says they're not just uh, these people that uh, have no tethering and no relationship to you. They actually are your possession, Lord. They belong to you. And he uses that personal pronoun many times, your people whom you have redeemed, your great power and your strong hand. And the key to that ownership comes in verse 10 when he says, you have redeemed them by your great power. The word redeemed, uh, when we find it in scripture, uh, especially in a soteriological way about salvation, always carries the idea that a ransom has been paid to secure people for God's own. Now, this is reflected, of course, in the great Passover story where the blood of the lamb uh, that had to be sacrificed was spilt and uh, put on the doorpost so that when the angel went overhead, he passed over when he saw the blood. And this, of course, is a great foreshadowing of what the great lamb of God, Jesus Christ, does for us on the cross. Uh, He paid a ransom to secure us for himself uh, so that Paul can say, You people are not your own anymore. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to Christ. Therefore, honor God with your body. 
So this idea of redemption means that a great, uh, unbelievably high price has been paid for God to secure his people out of slavery and make them his own so that they are his possession and his very own family and, and they make up his kingdom. And then verse 11, we see that Nehemiah suddenly gets very, very specific in his prayer. No longer does he pray in a general way, but what does he say in verse 11? Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's praying for God to intervene among his people to save them from what's happening in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, he places himself in this prayer and says, much like Isaiah does, here I am, use me, O Lord. Give success to your servant today, referring to himself. Give success. And by success, he doesn't mean uh, give me my best life now, so to speak, or give me health, wealth, and happiness. What he's asking for is favor with the king of Persia so that he can intercede on behalf of his people so that God's plans can be realized in Jerusalem, so that that kingdom of priests can be renewed in Jerusalem, so that the temple can be rebuilt and this wonderful community of believers can flourish yet again, so that what? Ultimately, so that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, may come to his people, the Jews, when the timing is exactly right. That's what all of this is driving to, and that's why this group of people, these returned exiles, are rebuilding their community. So Nehemiah is ascending to this position uh, in the Persian kingdom for such a time as this. He is the cupbearer to the king, and he has this unique opportunity that we will see in the beginning of chapter 2 to intercede for his people on on their behalf uh, in front of the king of Persia. He will need to confront and to convince the king of Persia to intervene. And he's asking for the Lord to give him favor in that, give him success in that endeavor. And that's where we'll leave off here. So lots of great information uh, that we can immediately apply to our prayer lives and pray uh, according to Scripture and according to God's promises and according to who God is and who we are in relation to him. So with that in mind... Let's transition to a time of prayer.